that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is addressing to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Each church receives a letter with their name at the top, at the very beginning, designating who these letters are to specifically. Today we're looking at the church in Philadelphia, wherein Jesus commends them to hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. We'll be looking into what that means here in a bit. Let's look at the first part of this letter. It's Revelations 3, verses 7 through 11. Hear God's word. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now, as this is your word, that your spirit would speak through me to your people. That you would apply this truth to their hearts and give them the desire to receive it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone warns you, hold hold fast to what you have. There might be a be careful label in front of it. But after that, hold fast to what you have. How would you respond to that? Perhaps the first question that comes to your mind is, what do I possess that I need to hold fast. My mind, for some reason, goes to a a woman in Florida who was walking her little dog. An alligator came out of the water and snatched that dog. And you would think that that was the end of the story, but it wasn't. This woman beat that alligator to the point where it let go of the dog, and she actually repelled the alligator to keep her little dog. I call that holding fast (laughs) to what you have. That little dog was precious to her, obviously. And she was willing to risk her life to keep it, to hold on to it. I think that's kind of an image that we need to look at regarding what Christ has given us and how important it really is to us and how we must hold it fast. I guess a second question arises in your mind if, as you think of that. Uh, 
what power or person is trying to take what I have away from me? It's not only what I possess that I must hold on to. What power or person is trying to take what I have away from me? And as you ponder even this second question, a third question comes to mind. How do I know that I will be able to keep what I have? How do I know that I will be able to keep what I have? As this letter is directed to the church in Philadelphia, what does the congregation at Philadelphia possess that they must hold on to? Halfway through verse 8, Jesus says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says, even though their ability or strength is meager, uh, when it talks about strength or power, which is defined in the NIV and ESV, that's the Greek word dunamis. And in this situation, the word ability is the better translation. Even the word capability. What can you do? Jesus says, I know where you're at strength-wise, power-wise, that, that the possibility of what you can do is meager. It is small. And yet you are holding fast to my word, to the word of God, and not denying the name of Christ Jesus. Let me say it again because this is so important. This is a weak congregation in the sense that they don't have much for resources. They don't have standing in the community. And yet they are holding fast to God's word, and they are not denying the name of Christ Jesus, even though that is the intimidation of not only the Jews, but the community in which they live. Philadelphia was a prosperous city, just to give you some background, up until 17 AD. A massive catastrophic earthquake hit the area and decimated it. And one of the things that they still had was agriculture. They had great vineyards. And so to make things worse for Philadelphia, not only did they go through this earthquake where Rome was very slow in any kind of support to rebuild one of its cities, uh, Domitian, who was Caesar at the time, did not, did not like the competition from Philadelphia regarding their vineyards and the making of wine. And so he commanded that the vine dressers tear out their, their vines by the roots to quell the competition so that Rome would, would be at the, at the forefront regarding marketing and, and sale of, of wine in the region. Well, that devastated Philadelphia's economy. But it wasn't just a poor economy in Philadelphia that was so difficult on the Christians there. It was also the matter of being shut out of the synagogue and what that meant. And I need to back up here and give a little bit of history to let you understand, to help us understand the circumstances these Christians were going through. Back before Christ, during the exile, there were two exiles. There was an Assyrian exile in the 8th century where the country, the nation of Assyria, defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and took them into slavery. They were exiled into that nation. Then in the 6th century, Babylon came and 
took over, defeated the southern kingdom of Judah, and took them into slavery. They were exiled. Well, they were slaves then for a number of years until the Medo-Persian Empire came in and, and defeated Babylon first and then started working on Assyria. King Cyrus was, was, was rather favorable towards the Jews and his predecessor, or though his, his uh, heirs to the throne, especially Artaxerxes, sent a coalition of Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. Ezra and Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, were part of that group that was rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, eventually, the Medo-Persian Empire fell to the Greeks, and the Grecian Empire fell to the Romans. During that the, the establishment of the Grecian Empire and even the Roman Empire, Jews were starting to migrate through the nations, through the empire. And they would set up their, they would go as a group and set themselves up as a community in the larger community in which they lived. And at the heart of that community would be a synagogue where they would worship. It would be like our church where we gather together to worship God. And so... In areas like Asia Minor, these cities, Jews had already migrated to these areas and set up their communities within the larger community, now within the Roman communities, and at the heart of that community would be a synagogue. What's significant about that is what you see Jesus saying is that they're shutting the door on you. They're shutting you out of the synagogue. Early on when... Christianity was considered more of a sect of Judaism. Uh, They were more welcome in the synagogues. But all you have to do is follow the life of Paul in, in Acts and see that where Paul went, there were some who rejected, just outright rejected Christ and rejected the gospel. And so they cast Paul out. And anyone who were who were followers of what Paul was teaching, they would cast them out as well. That's what's going on here in Philadelphia. That's why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They claim to be people of God, but yet they contend with God. They contend with His Word. They come against His Gospel. They they reject His Messiah. And they shut out Christ's people. Well, what are the effects on Christians when they're shut out of the synagogue? The Jews by that time had established a a certain arrangement with the Roman government. The Jews were good at banking and and, uh, business affairs and things like that, and and the Romans knew that when Jews arrived that they they could make that place more profitable. And so they struck an agreement. Because they were Jews, they did not have to say, Caesar is Lord, and that their life would have consequences. There would be consequences to that, if they, if they didn't say it, because everyone in the kingdom had to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord, but there was a special discrepancy, a special condition for the Jews. The Christians were under that protection for a time, but when they were shut out, they were no longer under that protection. So if you were a, a new convert from Judaism, and your Jewish brethren physically are in the synagogue, And the elders say, nope, we're scratching his name from the list. And the Roman authorities come and say, "Uh, so-and-so, is is he still a member of your synagogue? Nope, he is is outside of our jurisdiction. 
Really? And so that Roman authority comes and checks you out and says, Who's Lord? Jesus or Caesar? How are you going to respond? Who are you holding on to? When you look at what's going on here, the question again, what power or person is trying to take what I have away from me? Uh, Governments, you know, those who try and replace God, they're always trying to take away from you God's word and to replace God as king with themselves. And we see that through human history, don't we? That that's how that pattern works. But there are other powers behind that. As Paul says in, in, uh, in one of his letters, he says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities, dark spiritual forces in heavenly places. So the next question, what power or person is trying to take what I have away from me? Look at what Jesus is addressing here in Revelation 3, 7 through 9. We're going to look at the words holy and true that he calls himself in a bit, but he says, He who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. This is a quote from Isaiah 22, verse 22, amplifying what Jesus originally said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, describing himself as the living one. I was dead, he says, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. When Jesus says he holds the keys, uh, the key of David, he is referring to the keys that either lock you into hell forever or open the gates of heaven for you forever. You can come and go as you please into heaven through Christ Jesus who is the gate, who is the way. That door is open because He has opened it. The recognition that Jesus has opened it is His resurrection. When He took upon Himself our sin and our shame, He did not remain in the grave. There's, there's, remember, there's two sacrifices for sin. There's the burnt offering and there's the scapegoat. The scapegoat is when the priest would lay his hands on the goat or the lamb, and then send him out into the desert to to send away the sins of the people. But the sins are still on that goat somewhere. The burnt offering is, is when the sins are placed upon the lamb and they are consumed by the wrath and judgment of God. You have this image in Christ of not only removing our sins from us, but by those sins being destroyed and judged by God in His flesh, in His body, on the cross. And what remains after all of this judgment is still the righteousness of Christ Jesus that conquers, that perseveres. And it is that righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us and that covers us in the sight of God. And makes us holy in his presence. Is that not awesome to think about? Who Christ is for us. 
Therefore, Jesus says, the way is open and no one can shut it. The Jews are trying to shut you out, but that's not the right path. The path is through me, and I have opened that door, and it will stay open. Because nobody, the devil, these, these Jews who are a synagogue of Satan, the Roman authorities, no one can shut that door that I have opened up. Jesus refers to this condition for his people that have an open path into the kingdom of heaven, into the presence of God in verses 12 through 13, and we'll address that next week. But here, yes, the Jews are trying to shut Christians out of the synagogue. And should a Roman authority ask, who is Lord, Caesar or Jesus? These Christians are saying Jesus, knowing that their life is in jeopardy once they make, those, make that claim. But notice again what is being attacked. At the heart of the matter is the word of God and the name of Christ Jesus, the truth and holiness of God. I was thinking about this. As, you know, in the Garden of Eden, Satan doesn't come up to Eve and say, your money or your life. You know, I, either you, you give to me what God has given you or I kill you. He is a murderer from the beginning. Jesus tells us that. But that's not how he brings about death. He brings about death with a question. Hath God said? Hath God said? It's a matter of challenging the word of God. His truth and His holiness. If you begin with creation, you will see that it is God's Word that truly matters. Whatever wealth you gain in this world, it is insignificant compared to the power of God. It's it's nothing. It is the Word of God that truly matters. One of the most profound stories in the Bible that makes this point is the story of Job. Job is a man of high standards, high morals. He's a man who reveres God and shuns evil. He's considered the greatest man in the East among the people there. And the question then is, why was Job the greatest? Was he the greatest because of his material wealth and integrity? Or was Job the greatest because of his unmatched faith he had in the integrity of God and God's word? Was Job great because he had great faith in God or because he had great faith in himself? Satan wanted to know. What happened? Everything that Job had thought he had a handle on, that he had control of, was taken from him. Basically in a day from both persons and powers. You can see this in Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, if you want. It starts out with the Sabaeans. These are people. They attacked and killed Job's servants who were plowing with the oxen and watching the donkeys. All but one servant was put to death. He he came back to report what had happened. 
as they had taken away the oxen and the donkeys. Two is fire. That's power. It's a force of nature. It's not a human being. It's a force of nature. Fire fell from the sky, burning up the sheep and servants, save one to report. Then you go back to the Chaldeans, who are people. They attacked and killed Job's servants, save one who were watching the camels, and they took all the camels away. Wind, which again is power, a force of nature, struck the corners of his oldest son's house where all his family was celebrating and collapsed the building so that only one servant survived to tell Job what had happened. In all of this, Job held fast to the word of God and did not charge God with any wrongdoing. He held fast to the righteousness of God. Satan is then allowed to attack Job's flesh, Job's life, and that's all that Job has left. All of his material wealth, all of his resources, even his family have been stripped away from him. All he has left is his own personal being, his own life. And Satan attacks Job personally now, just to remind you of how cruel and evil this devil is. He doesn't act through natural forces of his people. He does this work himself, totally believing that this action against Job will turn Job, Job's faith away from God. Well, you have to hold on to what you have, right? What did Job have left but his life? Now that is being stripped away from him as well. How does Job respond to this as he reflects our hearts? Not well at first because hope is being drained from his body and the sorrow and pain he is feeling is turning into anger, exasperated by friends who can't relate to what is actually going on. Even though they come up with answers you would find in notable psychological and theological journals today. Job had gone from feeling included and respected as part of the community as part of his family, and even one in fellowship with God. He's gone from that to being excluded, to being placed on the outside. His, his own brothers won't talk to him anymore. They think that he's cursed by God. His community has rejected him, and it feels like God has even forsaken him. And then the cry of the soul, Where are you, God? Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? It sounds so similar, eerily similar to the cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ's plea, his cry is different than Job though. Job foreshadowed Christ Jesus, but he is not Jesus. If you have your Bibles open, Job 19, 25 through 27, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another, not someone who's going to take my place, not some facsimile. It will be me who sees the risen Lord who comes back to redeem my life. 
how my heart yearns within me. The Hebrew word here for redeemer is ga'al, which is also translated as deliverer or even kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer would be a relative who is charged with the duty of restoring the rights of another and avenging his wrongs. Here in this story is where we see how this story of Job converges with all of Christendom, with all God's people, especially those who are saved through Christ. In Revelation 3, verse 7, Jesus says, These are the words, the words of the one who is holy and true. Who is the only one who is holy and true? That would be God himself. When God speaks to Job in chapter 38, Job is given the understanding that if you want what is true, God's word is true. Anyone who contends against God's word is a liar. Because God's word is true. How do I know God's word is true? Because God is holy. He is other. He is the creator. Jesus is the Christ, the kinsman redeemer as the second member of the Trinity, the true and living word incarnated into human flesh. And as Jesus is the righteousness of God, Jesus is not simply a man of integrity as Job was. Jesus is without sin. He is holy in that He again is the righteousness of God. Jesus accomplished a work for you and me that only He could do. This is the point of Jesus being holy. There's no one else in existence who could accomplish what He did for us on that cross. There's no one else save for Christ alone as God's Son who was sent here into this world to live out a holy and righteous life one without sin, and then offer that life as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. The only way we come into the presence of God as those who are holy is if we are clothed in that righteousness. And that righteousness is received by faith. So the third question comes, how do you know that you will be able to keep what you have? So great a salvation Can I lose it? Can I lose my faith? Can I lose my salvation? That's why you live by faith in Christ Jesus. The justified shall live by faith. Jesus says in verse 11, Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Commentator G.K. Beale writes, Hold fast suggests that they're going to go through a time of tribulation. And holding fast means that you, you secure your faith in Christ Jesus. There are images throughout Scripture, whether it be the prodigal being restored by his father, whether it being those who are invited to the wedding banquet, who have no reason to be there save that they're clothed in the wedding clothes of the groom. They're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have these images throughout Scripture where it is God who restores us 
by applying to us the righteousness of his son. There is no other way that we can stand in God's presence save through that. And yes, we must understand what faith is. When we say the justified live by faith, we need to understand that faith is trusting. Meaning that you're trusting in something you can't live without. There's an old story about a young man who wanted to grow in knowledge. He wanted to be a great philosopher like the great Socrates. And so he went and found Socrates in the heart of the city and asked him, O oh, great Socrates, will you please teach me and instruct me so that I may have knowledge as you have? And Socrates looks at him and says, You want knowledge? Yes, said the young man. I sincerely want to know and have knowledge. Okay, come with me. They walked outside of the city down to the seashore. And Socrates said, Keep coming as they walked out hip deep, and then they finally got to the point where they were about chest deep. What do you want, young man? I want knowledge in the most earnest way. Socrates says, okay. He puts his hands on the young man's shoulders and plunges him under the water. 25 seconds go by, 30 seconds go by, 35 seconds go by. He lets the man up, and he's (laughs) trying to catch some breath, and what do you want, young man? I want wisdom. Plunges him underneath again. 30 seconds go by, 40, 45. The man is, the man is struggling underneath. He can feel him. He lets him up. Sputtering, he's, he's trying to grasp for, for breath. And Socrates, what do you want, young man? I want, I want knowledge. Underneath he goes again. 45 seconds go by, 50 seconds. You can feel him shaking underneath his hands. He finally lets him up one more time. What do you want? I want air! He screeches. I want to breathe. When you want knowledge as you have just wanted air, then you will have knowledge. You must have air to live in this world. Living by faith in the righteousness of Christ Jesus is the understanding that we cannot live in the presence of God unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And we must depend on His righteousness every day. We must hold fast to the Word of God, even Christ Jesus, and not deny Him. Martin Luther understood this very well. And in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the fourth verse, he writes these words. That word, Christ Jesus, the gospel, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth, because they tried to destroy him. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Hold fast to what you have in Christ Jesus 
as God accepts us as righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone, not our own. Yet how great an assurance that through the discouraging darkness of our own sin and imperfection, we have received by faith in Christ Jesus a perfect and holy righteousness who is Christ Jesus himself. Praise the Lord. Let's respond by turning in our blue hymnals number 478. We'll stand to sing.